Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. To celebrate the two-year anniversary of Pioneers and Pathfinders, we welcome a very special guest, Professor Richard Susskind, OBE. Now, for those of you who've been engaged in the discussions around legal tech and the future of the profession for the past few decades, Richard needs no introduction. He's one of the most advanced thinkers on the impact of technology on the profession and has been challenging our notions about what it will mean to be a lawyer for a long time. Richard is an advisor, speaker, and author who has focused on legal tech and the future of the profession long before these subjects were top of mind in the industry. In the 1980s, he wrote his doctorate at Oxford University on artificial intelligence, and today his main area of expertise continues to be the impact of AI and other technologies on the legal profession. Among other roles, Richard is president of the Society for Computers and Law and technology advisor to the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales. He's also an advisor to leading professional firms, in-house legal departments, and governments and judiciaries around the world. He's a frequent speaker at conferences, seminars, retreats, and other events, having been invited to lecture in more than 60 countries. Richard has written 10 books and has contributed more than 150 articles to the Times of London. His most recent publication is the third edition of Tomorrow's Lawyers, which is out now and which guides legal professionals through the imminent future of law and calls upon the next generation of lawyers to embrace technology in order to improve current legal and court services. In our conversation, Richard discusses the ways we should all be thinking about legal innovation, the challenges of training lawyers for the future, the qualifications of those likely to develop breakthrough technologies in law, and his own journey about how he became interested in AI as an undergraduate student. I was honored to have Richard join the podcast and hope you enjoy listening in on the conversation. Thank you for listening. Richard, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Oh, Stephen, the, the pleasure is mine. It's great to see you again. It's great to see you again as well. well. Let's start with your new book. You've got the third edition of Tomorrow's Lawyers out. Why now? And give us a little sense of what the book is about. So the first version was published almost exactly a decade ago, and I've written two editions, the third one just out, as you say, and it's called Tomorrow's Lawyers. It was written in a fit of peak. There was a period around 2012 when I was getting frustrated that I felt law schools, law deans, law firms, everyone wasn't understanding the future. And I felt a great disservice was being done to young lawyers coming to study law and thinking they might devote their lives to law because I felt no one was really giving them a roadmap, a likely indication of what would unfold in the legal world. So that was my original intention. And I insisted that the book was cheap. And I also tried to make it short. But it turns out that senior lawyers like short, cheap books as well. And it became, <laughs> of my 10 books, the best selling of all of them. And basically, I'm reflecting on the way in which the legal world is likely to develop at a time when there's great cost pressures, whether it be a general counsel at one end of the spectrum, along to the individual citizen or small business at the other end of the spectrum, at a time when we're seeing new players in the market, the big four and other alternative legal service providers, and we're seeing thousands of law tech startups burgeoning around the world, but a time above all else when technology is advancing at a ferocious pace. The fundamental backdrop really is this, that we're living in an era where our legal systems and our court systems are creaking, unable to offer affordable, accessible service to most. And at a time of greater technological advance, 
than humanity has ever witnessed. And I'm trying to bring the two together and suggest, above all, that we can greatly improve, overhaul the way we deliver legal services by harnessing the power of existing and emerging technologies. You asked the question in a fascinating way, which is, you don't talk about how do we make the profession better. You talk about how we use technology to solve the problems people are looking to have solved, which is a mindset change, I think, for most lawyers and most people in the profession, yeah? That's right. There's two related mindset issues here. One, I often come at through a discussion of a presentation I gave some years ago to 2,000 neurosurgeons. They asked me to be controversial in answering the question, what is the future of neurosurgeons? And my opening line was, patients don't want neurosurgeons. And there genuinely was a gasp in the audience. But I quickly (laughs) said, patients want health. I said, for a particular type of health problem, you're undoubtedly the best answer we have today, and thank goodness for you. But don't you think, I said, in, say, 50 years' time, people will look back and think it was unbelievably primitive that surgeons used to cut bodies open? Because the future of healthcare, I said, is non-invasive therapy and preventative medicine. And that got me thinking that the question, what's the future of neurosurgeons, is the wrong question. The question we should be asking is, how in the future will we solve the problems to which neurosurgeons are our current best answer? And similarly with lawyers. The question that everyone asks me to speak about, what's the future of lawyers, I think is the wrong question. We should be asking how in the future will we solve the problems to which lawyers are our current best answer. So that's one angle. The other angle, really turning things in its head similarly, but from a technological point of view, is the distinction I like to draw between automation and innovation. And automation is what most lawyers think of when they think of technology. They think of taking some task or process or activity and computerizing it, systematizing it, streamlining it, optimizing it, taking cost out of it. And in truth, the first 65 years of legal technology were devoted to automation, to grafting technology onto our old ways of working. But as I looked across the world at different markets and sectors and industries, I find the real game changers, the most radical uses of technology that have had profound impact, tend to be examples not of automation, but instances of what I call innovation in a very specific sense by which I mean the use of technology to allow us to do things that previously weren't possible. And that, for me, is the real excitement of these technologies that are emerging, that allows us to reach people, for example, that otherwise would be beyond the reach of law. So they're the two things I I like to stand on their head. Try not to think about lawyers. Try not to be a provider-oriented futurist. Try to think about what the recipients want and how we might give them what they want and need differently. And secondly, try not to think about automating the way we've always worked. When you're thinking of technology, think about how we can use the technology fundamentally to change the way we work and above all, to provide services that otherwise would not be possible. Let's, Let's stick on this automation innovation distinction you're drawing because you talk in the book about the impact of COVID and the pandemic and that it's sped automation and decelerated innovation. What do you mean by that? So the common observation that's made about COVID, a tragic period, of course, but the observation was that it accelerated technology in various sectors, including law. And I think that's an oversimplification. As you say, I think it accelerated automation, but decelerated innovation. So to make that more concrete, I think it accelerated a fairly narrow range of vital technologies. For example, technologies that allow us to communicate, collaborate, cooperate better with those we advise. And video conferencing, which had been around for decades, was one instance. It had been technically possible for years, 
but it was urgently needed to keep the traditional method of delivering legal service alive and kicking during the COVID period. That didn't fundamentally change the nature of legal service. That was still automation. It was still using technology to automate, to make available through technology, the traditional service, the one-to-one consultative advisory service. And the fundamental there is that we charge for people's time. At the same time, the more innovative technologies, whether they be AI or blockchain or whatever, they were understandably put on back burner for a while. During COVID, no one was really talking lavishly and enthusiastically about changing the business model. People, as I said, were trying to keep the business afloat, trying to serve their clients, trying to keep their clients afloat. And so the more innovative technologies, the research and development budget, the innovation team were less busy during this period. Now that COVID hopefully is in our rear view mirror, we're seeing, I think, an upsurge of interest in the more innovative technologies. Because in a way, COVID has been a little bit of a springboard for technology generally. Although it's been focused on innovation, automation as you were, although it's been focused on automation, it's opened people's eyes to new ways of working, to different ways of using technology, to embracing technology. So people have been looking around and thinking, what else can we do? And so all the more innovative thinking, all the more adventurous thinking, all the more disruptive thinking, I think, is is emerging now in the market. And 2023 and through the 20s, I think, we'll see characterized by these innovative technologies. Talking about innovative technologies, all the talk is, of course, of generative AI, chat GPT, et cetera. How do you assess the impact of these technologies on the way in which legal services are delivered, whether in a retail or a wholesale environment? ChatGPT has been completely fascinating for me. It opens a new chapter, frankly, in a story I've now been telling for over 40 years. I wrote my doctorate at Oxford University from 83 to 86 in artificial intelligence and law and co-developed from 87 to 88 the world's first commercial AI system for lawyers. So I spent my whole career thinking about the, the way in which AI might be used in law. We were working in far more primitive tools then, largely what were known as rule-based expert systems. But the spirit was the same, to use technology in the broadest of terms to take on some of the tasks that we historically thought could only be undertaken by human beings. And we saw a period, perhaps the last decade or so, a great upsurge in what are known as predictive AI tools. The terminologies are very unclear because strictly the generative AI is a, is a subset of the predictive tools. But in functional terms, we came across over the last decade these predictive systems that were, for example, used in litigation. So you could take a very large number of documents and essentially the system with a little bit of training could predict those documents that an expert lawyer would deem most relevant, similarly in due diligence. And people were beginning to work in other areas like the generation of documents. And of course, people were using the technology to predict the outcome of disputes. Generative AI, same underpinning technologies, basically neural nets, machine learning and so forth, a, a different set of technologies, certainly from the 80s. But the idea of the, the generative AI systems is that they can, as the name suggests, generate. Now, you'll know the systems that can generate art or can generate music or even generate code. What ChatGPT does is essentially generates text. And that's the generative part. The chat part is the part that essentially, again, the system trained to do this, the part that mimics human conversation. So we have a system here with which you can essentially chat online, and it really does feel as if you're interacting with another human being. And in some ways, it's not like Google, which 
searches for possibly relevant links or documents. It's a system that gives answers. But more than that, it's a system that on request will generate all manner of documents. It might be a poem. It could be a summary of a document. It could be an essay on climate change. But in our fields, what's fascinating is that we're using these systems or these systems are being used, for example, to generate very serviceable first draft contracts, to generate what we would call in our English court systems, skeleton arguments. We're hearing of a judge in Colombia who used and cited it in his research. We know of academics who've allowed the system to sit the multi-choice parts of the seven papers of the bar exam and it past two of them, evidence and tort. We're hearing of international tax experts using these systems to compare complex tax treaties and providing summaries that apparently are as succinct and impressive as the best human advisor and so forth. Now, I would say it's the most impressive AI system I've seen in the 40 years that I've been working on AI. The biggest point to notice, however, is it's an experimental prototype. I'm seeing already a lot of evaluations of this system and practicing lawyers criticizing what it can't do. They suffer from what I call technological myopia, and that is evaluating emerging technologies in terms of the current version of the system rather than thinking, what will chat GPT based on GPT-8 be like? Just now it's based on 3.5. It's making the imaginative leap. But this is very much experimental stuff where we're still at the foothills. It is funny, isn't it, that you've got two classes of lawyers, two responses to this. Some are very enthusiastic and some are very critical, very polarizing artificial intelligence. But I was struck with something that Ray Kurzweil said a couple of years ago, Ray Kurzweil being, uh, I think, the most prescient of futurists. And he was saying that the performance of neural nets was doubling every 3.5 years. And in the theme of his exponential growth, this means that in six years, they will have improved 300,000 fold. So I just want to give a sense that while a lot of people seem to think chat GPT is the end game, I say it's just a new chapter. But what's fascinating for me is how accessible it is. You don't need to be a computer specialist or have a very confined specialist area of life to test the system out. You go online, you sign on, you can talk to it about anything. And this, I think, has brought so sharply into focus the power of AI to people who otherwise were skeptical. A further point that's worth making, to a large extent, and I know a lot of computer and AI scientists will wince when I say this, but most AI and computer scientists were saying this was many years ahead, this kind of system. Because the dominant narrative of most AI specialists for the last few years is that AI is limited to what they call narrow AI, that it can only solve fairly limited problems. For example, it can play chess or it can identify the molecular structure of a complex protein. Well, this gives lie to that. You can ask this system almost anything. So for all these reasons, I think we really are the the dawn of a new era. It doesn't mean we can predict what precisely it's going to become. But I think that the way one needs to think about technology, for me, is under several headings. First, that our systems are becoming increasingly capable. As I said earlier, they're taking on tasks that in the past we thought could only be undertaken by human beings. Secondly, there's no apparent finishing line. No one in China or Silicon Valley or South Korea is saying, well, that's technology looked after. Let's plateau for a while and move on to something else. Quite the reverse, the, the pace of change is accelerating. And thirdly, which is the most exhilarating and I suppose disconcerting and scary of all, that the best technologies still await us. We're in the grand arc of human history and our work in information technology in the broadest sense. We are very much at the beginning of this story. 
And so I believe our lives will be transformed by technologies that have not yet been invented by 2030. Now, in fact, if I'd said that six months ago, our lives have been transformed by a technology that hadn't yet fully been launched. And so I find it hard to understand those who are still clinging on to the thought that somehow the legal world is immune from technological change, that somehow the change will only be in the back office, that somehow clients will always prefer a human face-to-face early billing-based interaction in in the resolution of its problems. I see that argument more flawed than ever. But you and I first met 10 years ago when I presented to your firm, and I was looking back at the slides I used then. The themes are very much the same. It's just the technologies now have been developed that allow the practical delivery of some of the solutions I was talking about. And it's a, it's a fascinating development for, for many of us. It feels like ChatGPT just got dropped in our laps and all of a sudden, here's the future. Yes. But you talk in the book about some of the changes necessary in the profession, particularly for lawyers, tomorrow's lawyers, to be successful in the different kinds of roles and different kinds of training. Juxtapose that with the speed of technological change. We've got all of these institutions that need to adapt and modify different roles, different responsibilities, yet do they have the capability to adapt quickly enough in light of the speed of technological change? And if not, how do you reconcile that push and that pull? Okay, I need to get a little bit of a run-up of this. Where I end up in this story is that I believe the next generation of lawyers will be those who design and build the systems that will replace the traditional ways of working in law. So I talk about 15 new jobs for lawyers. And it was interesting, again, when we last met, I was saying there were eight. There were eight in the first edition of the book that are now 15. But jobs like the legal design thinker, the legal data scientist, the legal knowledge engineer, the legal risk manager, the legal process analyst, the details don't really matter. But who are these people? Well, these are the people who will be designing the systems that will be solving the problems of tomorrow's clients. These are the people that will be designing the systems that will be making the law more affordable and more accessible. These are the people, as I stress again, who will be designing the systems that replace our old ways of working. So I argue, and I, I understand it's a little bit of literary license required here, but I argue they are tomorrow's lawyers because these are the people who will be responsible for the resolution of clients' legal problems. So the question then one must ask is what organizations are likely to train, nurture, and make available tomorrow's lawyers. And your doubt about essentially institutional drag, that the the major law firms, the major law schools, uh, the court service, these are huge organizations that do not change overnight. And so while there may be, the argument runs, very rapid technological progress, there might not be very rapid uptake of the available technologies. And in some respects, I have a lot of sympathy with that argument. But what I think we have to recognize is that we in law are going through a disruptive period that many other industries have faced in the past. It's not just in law, it's right across the professions. You may know that I wrote a book with my son, Daniel, who's an economist. And in that book, it was called The Future of the Professions. We looked across other professions, and what we're seeing playing out in law is the same as in audits and tax and architecture, in healthcare and journalism and elsewhere. So first of all, this is not a unique issue that traditional 
professions often self-regulating, traditional professions often conservative, are facing more rapid challenge and change than they have for hundreds of years in some instances. And it's hard to change the wheel in a moving car. If you're a big court service or a big law school or a big law firm, you can't take a couple of years sabbatical to build the systems that will replace your working, your ways of working. You need to do both in parallel. So there's two likely outcomes, I think, here. One is that it is possible that many of the major players will actually will actually never manage to change in the way we anticipate. And it is true when Daniel and I did some follow-up research on hundreds of firms after our first edition of our book, we've not yet found a major professional firm around the world that has fully self-disrupted. I often say of major law firms, it's hard to convince a room full of millionaires that they've got their business model wrong. The reality is in law firms, the incentives aren't there for them fundamentally to change. And most lawyers don't believe that change is imminent. They think they'll be changed by 2030, but not changed by 2025. And they, they may well be right. And it's the same in the courts. The courts are deeply institutionalized, deeply traditional, with practices and procedures that have evolved over decades, if not centuries. It's not easy to upend these overnight. And so I look in the first instance to the disruptors. I look to the three or 4,000 legal technology startups about a thousand of whom my research suggests are trying to do to law what Amazon did to book selling. In truth, only a handful of these would survive. I don't see there's going to be a single Uber or eBay or Amazon in law. We are too, I think, diversified and varied an industry. There are many aspects to our work. But I do think in combination, a number of these startups, lawyers think of them more as upstarts, but uh, we regard them as startups. I think a small number will have an incalculable impact in ways we can't yet imagine. We've seen this in the financial services industry. We've seen it in retail. There's no reason we won't see it in law. So you might not be asking the right question if you're asking, how is it that law firms will adapt? Because it may well be that they will fade uh, other than perhaps a number of, and I don't mean overnight, but over decades, other than a number of elite firms who may still be needed to work in the traditional way. As to the courts, a a similar solution is emerging around the world uh, in the shape of online courts and online dispute resolution. The idea that before parties appear in court, there'll be a kind of front end to the court system, whereas a variety of online techniques, more accessible, more affordable, more intelligible, quicker, cheaper, And many cases that historically would have gone to the courts would actually be resolved in an earlier stage, a kind of, on one level, a form of electronic ADR, alternative dispute resolution, at another level, a new way of actually delivering formal court services. But I predict that a lot of these front ends will actually displace and replace a lot of traditional dispute resolution. My biggest worry in many ways, strangely enough, is in the law schools, because I find them very conservative. There are exceptions and they're doing a great job, but many law schools around the world, many law professors around the world simply don't recognize the world that I, that I paint. And I ask the question, in an era of increasingly capable systems, in an era of AI systems such as ChatGPT, what are we training young lawyers to become? And I feel, I fear the answer today is we're training them to be 20th century lawyers still rather than 21st century lawyers. Whereas I believe we need to be teaching them and coaching them and bringing them through in the 15 new law jobs I identify. There's no obvious alternative today to the traditional law schools. So I can see alternatives in the shape of 
alternative legal service providers like the big four and law tech startups who could perhaps challenge and replace at least some of the work of traditional law firms. And I can see front ends and alternative dispute resolution delivered electronically as a challenge and change to the court service. It's not obvious yet to me that the law schools will be challenged and changed, although I personally would like to lead an initiative in thinking deeply about how we can train the next generation of legal providers, and I use that term advisedly. But you're absolutely right. The institutional drag and the traditional players will no doubt be a factor. All of that said, one final thing on that question. In 2020, in January, if you had asked litigators and judges around the world if they could have moved within a couple of weeks to the idea of essentially video hearings, you would, if you'll forgive the pun, being laughed out of court. It, that would seem an absurd proposition. What happened when lawyers and judges really did need to change, we saw that they actually can change very rapidly. Now, that, of course, was pandemic conditions. It could equally be, though, that economic conditions will be a similar catalyst. Let's pick up on the training piece, because I, I find you talk a fair amount about that in the book, and you make some interesting I think some fabulous points. One of them I'm curious about hearing a little bit more about is a point you make about how there's an advantage for these individuals going into these new roles for lawyers. And you define lawyers as being someone that delivers legal services as opposed to a traditional trained lawyer. But you talk about the importance of a traditional qualification, that there being an advantage to getting your feet wet in a certain way of saying for basic training as a lawyer before moving into these positions. Am I misreading that or is that sort of your view? No, you're not misreading it. And each time I've done a revised edition of the book, I've thought quite deeply about that. I think my refined position now, perhaps not clearly enough stated in the third edition, is that I have little doubt that some of the breakthrough law tech startups will not be founded by people who are qualified lawyers. In fact, quite the reverse. Often amazing startups emerge from disgruntled recipients of, of a service or a product who said there must be a different way of doing this. And so I am absolutely open to the idea that some of the breakthrough technologies may be designed and delivered inspired by people who are not lawyers. But my thought is more for those who are considering, as it were, a career in the law and what I'm saying to you is you may no longer be a one-to-one -one consultative advisor. You're going to be someone who will be building the systems that will replace the old ways of working and sustaining these systems in the years to come. And it does seem to me that it's useful to have a base discipline. When I talk of legal knowledge engineers and legal data scientists and legal risk managers, I like the idea that these people have training in law and are also trained in these other disciplines. So I'm calling for multidisciplinary work for multidisciplinary qualifications. I've got a strong background myself in this. I, I am half a lawyer, half a technologist myself. But uh, way back in the early 90s, at Strath Clyde University in Glasgow, we provided a joint computer science and, and law degree. And I know a few of these people who've been through that course, and uh, I still find them to be inspiring hybrids. So I'm encouraging there to be hybrids in the world of law. But I think there is no harm. In fact, there might be great benefit in having law as one of your core disciplines. That's if you're, as I say, passionate about a career in law, and by which I mean that you want to help solve the legal problems of people, or you want to solve the access to justice problem or difficulty, 
If you're a founder, often your motivation is rather, what's a great idea for making a bag of cash? Uh, and I don't condemn that. But I think it's a different, it's a different career. So if someone said to me that they, they wanted to be a founder of a startup and they're quite interested in law, but their passion is starting up and building a business, I wouldn't say, spend three years in law school, two years qualifying, a couple of years in practice, and let's see in seven years, by which time the world will have spun around quite considerably. I'd say, well, why don't you just step in directly? But if someone says to me, I love the idea of law. It's our most important social institution. Justice means a lot to me. Isn't it uh, shocking how unaffordable and inaccessible legal services is? I want to be part of the solution to that. I would say, why not study law and practice law in the first instance? You have a long career ahead of you. And in parallel, and you notice I say this in the book, and that's a change from a previous edition. I think our law schools simply must be offering courses that in the various disciplines, new jobs I mentioned, and also the whole subject, because I think it is a subject of the future of law, the future of legal services. We have a literature, we have research in this area, and I think it's a legitimate object of study. Hard to convince my, I'm a law professor myself, but it's hard to convince my mainstream law professor colleagues of this who will quite understandably say the curriculum's already full. Once we've done contract, tort, constitutional law, and all the rest of it, there's no time for legal data science or legal knowledge engineering. Well, we need to find time. We need to rethink, as I say again, what it is we think we're training our young lawyers to become. I couldn't agree more. Question, you mentioned your own dissertation and your work back in the 80s in AI. You got interested in this topic at an era where it was not that far removed from mainframes and punch cards. I still remember taking piles of punch cards to the computer center and having them run the program. What was it about your background that made you such an early visionary in this world? What sparked this interest in you, Richard? You have to be careful, I think, when you're looking back at your career, all of us, that you don't rewrite it more strategically than it actually was at the time. And at the time, it was fairly opportunistic. In 1981, a lot of noise about the personal computer. We'd moved from an era of mainframes where personal computing seemed to be a reality. And I was an undergraduate studying law at Glasgow University, and I had the opportunity in place of one of my final papers to write a dissertation. And my core subject then was jurisprudence, legal philosophy. I was fascinated by the way that judges come to their decisions. And the question I was quite interested in was how could technology in the future affect the work of judges? So I wrote a dissertation, 81 to 82, called Computers in the Judicial Process. And while I was doing the research for this and very much assisted by a great librarian, I came across this field of artificial intelligence. And it turned out there were only 26 publications none of them books, all of them papers, only 26 publications in the world in the field of AI and law in the English language. And it wasn't really 26 researchers, it was about six or seven of them, each of whom had written a a few papers. And I thought this would be a, a wonderful area to do research in. And so I got in touch with a man called Colin Tapper at Oxford University. And he, I think Colin was both the founder of two fields, three in fact, but one, the founder of computer law, technology law, and it was also the founder of legal technology in many ways. One of his original research led to the Lexus system and so forth. He was also a leading exponent of the law of evidence. But I managed to convince Colin to be my supervisor. 
and from 83 to 86 wrote the, the doctorate on the subject of AI and law, specifically expert systems and law. And I'm quite unusual, I suppose, because many people who do PhDs don't really go and spend their, their lives in the same subject. But in a way, I have done. So I sometimes think it might have been nicer to have widened my horizons on the one hand. On the other hand, it's quite nice devoting a career to following a field through. The thing I don't want this field to be is what I call a cathedral project. Cathedral project is when you're, if you're alive at the beginning, you're not at the end. And <laughs> I'm increasingly thinking when you see the pace of change in AI, that much of the, the thinking I did in the early 80s will, will bear fruit in this decade. Uh, I think it absolutely will. Uh, you mentioned you wrote the first edition of Tomorrow's Lawyers in a Fit of peak. <laughs> yes. Out of your frustration with people not listening to you. And I can appreciate your frustration sometimes feeling like you're the lone voice in the wilderness. Has that dynamic changed for you as more people, as the, the more entrance into the market is more? Are you more optimistic now than you were then? Well, I would say it's fundamentally changed. I, I, I've spent of this 42 odd years in this field. I would say I spent about 36 or 37 of these years on the edge of the legal world. But over the last five years or so, I'm pretty mainstream now. I, I, it's not unusual to have me along it, not as some kind of parallel session in a, in a back room at a conference, but actually to be on the main stage. I'm invited all around the world to, to speak to judiciaries and, and governments and, and major law firms. I get contacted by legal leaders now where it used to be the legal technologists. In some senses, it's not as much fun. I quite like the battle, actually. I quite like <laughs> having to try and convince people that this future was, if not likely, certainly probable. To some extent, I could say my work's done because, and ChatGPT again has played a major role in this, very few people who use that system are now seriously doubting that our increasingly capable systems are going to exert a huge impact on professional life. So yes, a, a massive transition. My interest has always been, however, less in the providers and more of the recipients of professional services. It's very interesting when you talk about AI and law, Lawyers immediately talk about themselves, immediately talk about what it means for them as individuals, for their careers and for the firms. And I completely get that. But I think the more interesting question is, does this mean a cheaper, quicker, more affordable, more convenient service? Does this mean that we might be able to crack some of the access to justice problems? Does this mean that we have a healthier rule of law in many more countries around the world? They're the questions I think we should be asking and answering. I agree 100%, and I can't think of anybody better to ask them than you. We're out of time. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time you spent with us. The book is Tomorrow's Lawyers, third edition. It's a great read. You can get it on Amazon or wherever great books are sold. Richard, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Stephen, many thanks. Very generous of you. And let's not leave it another 10 years. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.